want to invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, today is the last message that I'm going to share with you on prayer. And before I present it, I want to make a few summary comments about this prayer series uh, with a few practical suggestions for making prayer a greater priority in our lives. So let me go through a few things. Number one, I first hope that as we've gone through this series that you have a clearer expectation that God wants us to pray. God expects us to pray. Have you, wouldn't you agree that uh, in relationships, knowing expectations is pretty important for that relationship to do well? God, in the relationship that he has with us through Christ Jesus, expects us to commune with him. He wants us to pray. You remember Jesus said, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, over and over. In Luke 11 and 18, men ought to always pray and not faint and lose heart. Uh, he commends persistence in prayer. He said, my house would be characterized as a house of prayer. And so I hope that you and I are known and characterized as a people who pray. Jesus also added that we should be intentional and focused to pray for the nations, for the unreached. For Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4, to not to be anxious about anything, worried, stressed out, but instead praying about everything. And so hopefully God has encouraged you a little bit, stirred you up a little to understand that he expects us uh, to pray. And what a wonderful what a, what a blessing it is that you and I can, can talk to the God of all creation. Second, I want to urge you to remember uh, or to consider immediate praying or spot praying. Spot praying. You know what spot praying is? Immediate praying? It's praying on the spot. Whenever you are with someone, especially someone of your church family, and they share a concern, a need, that we just pause and pray on the spot, right then, right there. If you're in a parking lot, if you're in a hallway at school, if you're in the grocery store, if you're in your car, uh, in your home, just wherever you are, just say, well, let's just stop right here and pray. Um, Whenever that thought pops into your mind to pray with someone, that's probably not you thinking of that. It's probably the Holy Spirit bearing witness with you to pray with someone right, right on the spot. And so that one encourages you. Number three, uh, to begin being more intentional about initiating prayer in your home, to pray in your home. There's nothing that is any more of a blessing to me that when Mindy prays with me, prays for me, or vice versa. It's a great encouragement uh, for parents, for you to pray with your kids. Uh, some of you young people would be nothing wrong asking if your mother, asking your mother or your dad, hey, can I pray for you? Might shock them a little bit. But praying in the home. Number four, find a prayer partner. In addition to praying in, in your home with those of your own family, find a prayer partner, another person in your church family that you pray with on a regular basis. Do any of you have someone like that? Many of you do. Uh, my prayer partners have 
here have been the staff, Don, Jason, Jack. We pray quite a bit together. There's a couple other brothers in this church that I pray frequent, frequently with. And so have a prayer partner. And then last, and this is what I want to share with you this morning, let's be more intentional about praying for the lost. Praying for lost people. Get focused on that person or persons that the Holy Spirit has placed on your mind or has put a burden in your heart for to pray for that person. It might be a family member. It might be a grandson, granddaughter, a co-worker. There's somebody in your sphere of influence that is lost and God wants you to win them, to reach them, to pray for them. And so that's where I want us to start and would want to share with you some things from Matthew chapter 9 about praying for the lost. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read here in just a moment. If you remember, Matthew is the author, the son of Alphaeus. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Matthew came to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. He was Jewish. And when Jesus called Matthew, he leaves everything and follows the Lord. Once he places his faith in the Lord and follows him, his life began to change. He uh, is different than he used to be. He was probably prior to this time a scoundrel. You know his occupation, do you remember? He was a tax collector. Tax collectors gathered taxes for Rome and any taxes they could levy against their own people went into their own pockets. They were known as being crooked. They, they took excessively from their own people. And so Matthew's career was one of financial corruption. He was certainly held in contempt by his own people. But knowing Jesus changed him. His affections changed his love of money was transformed to a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. His love of self was transformed to love his Jewish brethren. And when Jesus calls, he leaves his financially lucrative business and lifestyle, lays it all down, and follows Jesus. He writes this gospel with an aim. He wants the Jewish people to understand, to recognize that Jesus is this long-awaited consolation of Israel. And so Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, goes back and uses the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that the Jews would believe in. And so he builds his case for Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, by using those scriptures, his methodology. That was his approach to reach his own people. And there's a correlation between Matthew's desire of reaching his own people, his family members and neighbors and co-workers. It aligns with the same desire that Jesus had. Do you remember Luke records? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark records it another way. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the purpose of redemption for many. 
for many. Um, that contradicts this warm, contemporary, inclusive notion that goes something like this. Well, the God that I believe in is a loving God. And he, I believe that this loving God, if you're a good person and if you're sincere and you try to treat people well, that you'll go to heaven. This God that I believe in would never condemn anyone. He's a loving, good, gracious God. And while that popular notion sounds good and feels good and is embraced more and more by our culture, it's not the God of the Bible. That warm, feel-good notion runs contrary to Jesus saying, I've come to save many, not all. Jesus said, I am the way, the only way. I am the truth, absolute truth. I am the way, abundant life, eternal life. And there's no other way, no other life way, access to the Father except by me. Matthew and the gospel writers are clear that Jesus had a very intentional understanding for his life's purpose to reach the lost, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you might be here this morning, and I want to ask you, have you placed your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you agreed with God that, God, I've sinned against you, I am a sinner, and I deserve punishment? for my sin, but I'm thankful, God, that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross for me, to sacrifice sacrifice his life for the punishment that I deserve was all metered out on Jesus on the cross, and so I repent of my sins, and God, I ask you to forgive me and save me, become ruler, become Lord of my life. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you're not sure that you have a right standing with God and your sins are forgiven and that you have the confidence of eternal life, then in just a few moments you can come and you can pray. You don't even have to come. You could just pray where you are. God will hear you. He knows your heart. And God will save you and forgive you of your sins. Our mission as a church is the same as Jesus, to seek and to save the lost, to make disciples, starting right where we are and extending outward to the nations. And from our text, Jesus provides us with the starting line, some insights on how to get started, to be more effective at reaching the lost. So here's what I want us to do. Hopefully that you received one of these green sheets and And so this sheet has two sections to it. I'm not not doing this today as a something gimmicky. It's not that at all. But this sheet has a place for you to write down at the top a name of a person, maybe a couple of people, that you have a burden for. Somebody that you know personally that's not a Christian that you work with or go to school with or you live next door to or it might be a family member would like for you to write the name of that person down or persons 
And on the bottom part of this sheet, we'd like you to write it there as well. And on the bottom part of the sheet, if you'd like to write your name, you can put your name there too. And at the end of the message, we're going to ask you to tear this sheet in half and to keep the top portion with you, slip it in your Bible as a reminder to pray for that person or those persons. And then we're going to ask you to bring the bottom sheet here to the front and pray for those people and then leave the bottom sheet here. And this will be a six-month partnership for the next six months. I and the staff will pray every week over every name. And if you put your name, we'll pray over every one of your names and the names of the people that you're, that you're praying for. And we'll partner with you in prayer. Six months, six-month commitment. And the staff, and we've already talked about this, and we'd be honored to do that. And just trust God. And trust the work of His Spirit as we pray for lost people. So that's what we're going to do this morning for an invitation. I invite you to read with me our text this morning, Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. Matthew 9, starting with verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. God, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit, from your word. Give us ears to hear your voice and minds that will think and remember what you say. And from whatever you say and show us from your word, God, would you empower us through your spirit to respond with greater fervency and faithfulness in intercessory prayer for the lost to be saved all of it for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of us are on the go. We carry full schedules. The wheels are spinning at high speeds, nonstop. There are work appointments, Tasks, things to do at home, activities at school, sporting events, things with the kids, things with the grandkids. There is travel. There are relatives. I don't know if you've backed up and looked at a church calendar. There's all kinds of things going on. If someone asks us, well, how are you doing? How are things going? One of the common responses that we give is, well, I'm busy. And sometimes we say, I'm busy with pride. Take pride in our busyness and our schedules. 
If you're like me, when there's an evening and you get home and, and you don't have some place to be or there's not something to do, I, I'm starting to enjoy those evenings more and more all of the time. In our text, in verse 35, Jesus is on the run. He's on the go. Wheels are spinning. It says he went to the cities. And in fact, not just the cities. It says he went through all of the cities. And not just the cities. Jesus went through the villages and all of the villages. Throughout the entire area, that Middle Eastern area, he's on the move. He's on the go. And Matthew describes his threefold ministry. He's on the go doing ministry. He's teaching in the synagogues. He didn't teach just in the synagogues. He taught on mountainsides. He taught in the homes. He's ministering the scriptures, usually using the scriptures to show others who he is, that he's the Messiah. He's busy preaching, proclaiming good news, teaching others about the kingdom. Mark records that when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to preach calling everyone to repentance and to prepare for the kingdom and healing every sickness, every disease. His fame had begun to spread. People who were lame and blind and who had all kinds of illnesses and issues physically, they had learned that there's this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, this many are saying he's the Messiah and he is changing, transforming people's lives physically. And so everyone was trying to get their sick loved one or someone who had an illness or a birth defect, whatever it was, they were bringing everyone to the Lord. He was busy. He was on the go. Matthew's point is that Jesus is having an impact on the kingdom by his words and by his actions, making a difference. Jesus was a people person. Everyone came to him, children, young adults, political figures, religious types, military figures, Jews and Gentiles alike, all were coming to see Jesus. Yes, he certainly withdrew regularly. The Bible says that to pray, to be alone with the Father. But for the larger part, Jesus was with people, surrounded by multitudes and crowds. Sometimes he had to withdraw and get away from them. And then from the remainder of the text, I want to share with you four quick observations. These observations hopefully would characterize us individually as well as collectively if we're going to be more effective at reaching lost people for the gospel. First, and would like for you to notice in verse 36, Jesus saw clearly. Jesus saw clearly. He didn't just see physically. But he saw the multitudes. He saw people with intent. He saw people with purpose. If you have your Bible, look here in chapter 9. I think Matthew is pretty intentional. Look at verse 2. He got into a boat, crossed over, came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And what? Jesus didn't just see the paralytic. He saw something. He saw their faith. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. He saw him. 
evidently saw some potential. He calls him to follow him. Look at verse 22. There was a woman who had a physical issue, losing blood, and she had There's another Bible text that says she had spent all that she had going to various doctors without any success. And she hears about Jesus and she thinks to herself, if I could only see Jesus and just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. And so as Jesus was on the go, she touched him. And verse 22 says, he turned around and when he saw her, Look at verse 23. Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And then there in our text of verse 36, he saw. He saw the multitudes clearly. He saw with a lens, a certain kind of lens that he viewed people through that provided clarity, a spiritual lens, a lens The way that Jesus saw people was different than the way other people viewed people. When you are out and about throughout the day, throughout the week, how do you view people? Do you see people with a spiritual lens? Do you view them through the gospel? People that come in to you to see you in the workplace or people that you interact with or students that you're surrounded with? How do you see them? Do you ever wonder which road they're on? Are they traveling the broad road? The easy road? The popular road? The road that Jesus says that many most are on? Or are they traveling that narrow road? That Jesus says is a hard road. It's a difficult road. And he said few there be that travel that road. Which road are they on? God has designed a means, an approach for moving people off the broad road to the narrow road. And that approach is through the gospel. And that change, people moving, involves you and me. We have a role to play in that. You say, well, how, how? Well, you and I, as a church family, it begins by the way we see people, how we view them. That makes the difference. That's the starting point. We'll never be effective at reaching people with the gospel until we learn to see lostness, brokenness. People traveling, living on a way and such that's going to lead to eternal separation from God. Paul said to the Corinthians, it's a wonderful, wonderful phrase in the Bible. Study it sometimes. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul said, we, referring to followers of Christ, no longer see, we no longer regard anyone from a human point of view. We see people differently than the way we used to. We regard people differently than the way we used to. That one translation of that verse means we stopped evaluating people apart from grace and mercy. We see people differently than we once did. We now see them through the lens of the gospel. And if you read the gospel narratives, you don't have to read very long to realize that Jesus' disciples, his followers, initially didn't see people the way that Jesus saw them. Blind Bartimaeus, 
heard that Jesus was passing by. When he heard about him and he knew about him, he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And do you remember what the disciples say? Shh, hush. You're embarrassing. You're a nuisance. Be quiet. Go away. They preferred that Bartimaeus wasn't around. And when parents started bringing their little children to Jesus, the disciples see the children as a distraction and they urge parents to take their children away. Jesus is too busy. And Jesus said, oh no, suffer the little children, bring them unto me. And after Jesus had taught all day and the disciples come to Jesus and he'd been teaching to thousands of people and the disciples come and say, Master, it's getting late. The people are hungry. Send them away. And Jesus said, no, let's don't send them away. Let's feed them. Jesus saw people differently because he understood the gospel and he understood the roads and he understood what was at stake. Second, not only did he see people clearly, he cared deeply. Also in verse 36, what does Matthew record? When he saw the multitudes, he cared deeply. He was moved with compassion. The word compassion refers to the gut, the human gut. The King James Version will translate that Splajmizomai, which is the Greek word, he translated bowels. When Jesus saw people, he was moved physically in the gut. He saw them as harassed and ravaged and weary and scattered and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. Do you know what the world's greatest need is today? Do you know what the single greatest problem in the world today is? There's a clear answer. It's lostness. It's the greatest problem in the world. It's the greatest need in the world. It's an eternal problem. Jesus saw lostness. He was moved with compassion. He felt it. You remember John 10.10? He said, I am the good shepherd which lay my life down for the sheep. He longed to reach them, to bring them into the fold. The disciples initially didn't see people the way that Jesus saw people. He had to teach them. They had to learn that. And the Pharisees certainly didn't see people like Jesus. If you have your Bible, keep it open here in chapter 9. Go up earlier with me. Earlier in chapter 9, look at verse 9. The Pharisees did not see people the way Jesus saw people. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to Matthew, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed Jesus. Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat in Matthew's home at the table in his house that Behold, many, ta- many other tax collectors and other sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when his, the Pharisees saw it, 
They saw Jesus. They saw the kind of riffraff that he was associating with. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't see people the way Jesus saw people. He's hanging around the riffraff. Jesus is hanging around the bad people, the trashy people, the immoral people, the dishonest people. And the religious members of the Jerusalem temple, the Pharisees are described in the Bible as the upstanding members, the good temple folk, the moral ones. The people who keep all the rules, they are the elder brother types in Luke 15. The ones who didn't think of themselves as being sinful. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. Listen to this. Jesus, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, referring to the Pharisees. And Jesus spoke this parable to some Who were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others? We're the righteous ones. We're the good ones. And everyone else, they're they're the riffraff. And if you're going to read that parable, you remember about the two guys who pray. This upstanding, righteous, good rule keeper comes into the church, and his first prayer is, "God, I thank I thank you that I'm not like them. I'm not like them. They're sinful. I'm not sinful. I'm righteous." Huh? You remember the Sermon on the Mount? The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, you have no part in the kingdom. It's a difference in the way they saw people. When the Pharisees saw it, they didn't like it. Jesus is with the wrong people, and they ask his followers, Why does your teacher associate with such? Aren't you concerned about what people are going to say about your teacher? Hanging around those kinds of people? Matthew, because of his sinful past, because of his thievery and corruption, that group of people were never, I don't care how much he changed, how the gospel transformed the life of Matthew, there was a certain group of people that would never accept him. But Jesus saw differently. He knew that God could change. But you remember when Jesus first meets Peter, or after Peter at Caesarea Philippi, when he first makes that confession? What is Jesus? Jesus sees something in Peter. He says, Peter, you are, you're Peter. You're a little stone, but you'll be Cephas. You'll become a great rock. Jesus saw him. Jesus knew what God could do in his life. God, Jesus knew the change that was possible in Peter's life. And you, you read, a, Peter's probably one of my favorite disciples because he's so rough. He just shoots his mouth off and says things and cuts people's ears off and flies off the handle. And, but he's changed. He, he's changed. God changes him. Thank God for the gospel. 
Jesus saw people clearly. He cared deeply. And third, Jesus thought properly. Verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but here's the problem. The laborers are few. There's a growing number of people today that have bad biblical theology who twist the scriptures and arrive at a view called predeterminism. Predeterminism, and notice I didn't say predestination. Predestination is a good Bible doctrine that runs through the Bible, but it's not predeterminism. Predeterminism is the view that God will save those he's going to save, and it's no real concern of mine. I'll just take care of me and my family, and God can do whatever he chooses to do. Predeterminism. William Carey, who is considered to be the father of modern-day missions, before leaving for India, India, was ridiculed by other pastors. Brother Carey, what are you doing? If God wants to reach the pagans of India, he doesn't need you. You see, the same grace that was presented to us is the same grace that God calls, he commands us to present and share with others. God's methodology from moving people off the broad road to the narrow road of reaching the lost men and women that we're surrounded with, of bringing them into the kingdom is through human instrumentality. He could have done it another way, but God chose to reach lost people through his church, through you and I as his followers. We are to present, to proclaim, to share the good news. We are the presenters. We are the witnesses. The whole purpose for being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit is when the Spirit comes upon you shall receive power to be my laborers, to be my witnesses. If we're going to be effective at reaching lost people, we have to see lostness clearly. We have to care deeply. We have to think properly to stop evaluating other people from our own human point of view. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the witnesses are few. What are they doing? They're busy doing other things. In John chapter 4, when Jesus arrives in Samaria, he saw a Samaritan woman drawing water from Jacob's well, and he engages her in a conversation. And through that conversation, she comes to the point of understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, and she becomes a great evangelist. She reaches the entire Samaritan area, and she says she brings them to Christ, and many believe through that female evangelist. And you remember what happens when the disciples arrive on the scene? They were shocked to see that Jesus was talking with her because they didn't see her the way Jesus saw her. Jesus is teaching them to think, to reason. Do not say, stop thinking this way, stop reasoning this way. Do not think that there's plenty of time 
that there's still four more months before the harvest. Stop thinking like that. Stop reasoning like that. Stop saying that. Think. Lift up your eyes. Look around you. Listen to what Jesus actually says in John chapter 4. Trying to correct their thinking. Do not say... There are still four months and then comes the harvest. See, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps, reaps wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored for, and you have entered into their labors. Jesus saw the crowds, the multitudes. How did he see them? He saw them with compassion. It moved him. He cared for them. And he was trying to teach his disciples to think differently, absorb, take on a new perspective about people. And then he closes. He saw clearly. He cared deeply. He thought properly. And he prayed earnestly. He asks the Father to send out laborers, witnesses into the harvest, to go out, to engage people, to talk to folk, to, to compel them to come, to come. I think something really interesting here, after Matthew records this, and Jesus is calling his disciples to pray, that's the starting point. It's worth noting that after they pray that God would raise up witnesses, labors to go out into the harvest, look what happens in chapter 10. Look at this with me, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him. He gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. And then Matthew lists the 12 disciples' names. And then look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. Do you see that? He's teaching them to see differently, to care, to think, and to pray. Pray for God to send out witness and labors. And who were the witnesses that went out? Them. It's right, right there in verse 5. They become the witnesses they pray for. They become the laborers. God, let me see like you through a gospel lens. God, help me to care like you do. Give me a new understanding, a new way of thinking. And God, I pray you begin with me. Let it start with me. Let the changes for reaching the lost begin in my own life. 
I invite you to pray with me. As Philip needed to come. For an invitation, I'll be here at the front. If you want to come and pray with me about your own relationship with Christ, I'll meet with you. I'd be, I'd be honored and humbled to pray with you. For Hillcrest, for those if who would, I would. If there's a name or a few names of some lost people that God has put in your life that you have a burden for, and asking you to make it at least a six-month commitment, and you'll pray regularly, and I and the staff will pray weekly for you and for the persons. That you list, and it'll all be kept confidential. You don't have to worry about us saying anything or sending anything. It'll be strip, strictly an emphasis of prayer. And so, as we play, pray, and as we begin, you respond and you come as God's Spirit might speak to you. Father, have Your way in us. God, we we want to reach lost people. We understand that's the mission of our church. That's why we're here. We have a message to tell, a message to share. God, use me to reach lost people. Give me a sensitivity to your spirit and a boldness to engage in conversation. To ask if they know where they're going to spend eternity, if they're in a right relationship with you. Help us to see lostness, to care, and to think, and to pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.